Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to My Good Bad Brain. Uh, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. If you like the show, keep it alive there. And also, if you do like the show but don't feel like dropping some dough, I'm not meaning to rhyme, but I am. Leave us reviews wherever you find us. Uh, iTunes is a good one. Uh, Those are really nice. Also, we're on Spotify now? What? All right. Theme music. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression. But I'm doing better since I medicated me I'm still not always sure whether I exist Or what being a person even really is But I figured out a long time ago That being alive is beautiful Do you ever stop battling depression? Battling. Battling is the funniest way to describe it. Battling. Living with it? I don't know. Not everyone has depression. And not everyone has uh, other things. You might have uh, anxiety, right? You might have uh, one one of a bajillion things. You might have nothing. I don't think anybody has nothing. Even if you don't have a diagnosed psychiatric thing, we all have something. That seems to be with us forever. I always had so much trouble with the idea of finality. That's how I described it. I remember. I I don't know. I remember. I was associated, especially figuring that out. The last time I saw my grandfather, he, I knew he was going to die, and I knew the last time I saw him was the last time I was going to see him. And as as soon as I uh, left the the house and the screen door closed behind me and I was in the car on the way to the ferry. They lived on a very small uh, island in Wisconsin, a rural Wisconsin. Um, I remember just crying and saying, it's just the finality of it. That's, I just don't know what to do with that. It's, you know, eternity I'm trying to comprehend that. And on a smaller scale, uh, anytime, I get the sense that, okay, now I know what it's going to be for the rest of my life. Whether it's a loved one, like a relationship, a partner, or a 
a job and I get the sense, so I guess this is it now. This is what I'm going to do forever. I get really panicky and I get really overwhelmed. And that becomes a really insidious trap with things like depression because every time you feel you beat it, you get through a dark, bad bubble, bad phase. You think, oh, great. I, I figured it out. I beat it. I got the tools, whatever. And sometimes it shows up again and it's doing its thing with its chemicals and it's really easy to get trapped in like, ah, fuck the shame of like, I thought I beat this, but I didn't. I must've been stupid. I must've been mistaken to think that I'm weak. I gets back, whatever. It's easy. It's almost easy to feel worse uh, because you thought you'd fixed it or something as if you were broken in the first place, but you're fixed it. But then, oh, you were wrong. You didn't fix it. You're still broken. And then you got this spiral. And then you get into the zone of thinking, okay, well, let's jump through that hoop and say, well, maybe this is something I'm going to live with. Battle. (laughs) I don't like that. Battle it. I don't believe in that. I'll get into that, I guess. But live with it. Have this thing. For the rest of my life, it's going to be this cycle. It's going to be my ism, you know? And then that can be a trap. So I'm going to do this forever? This is never going to go away? It's exhausting. And sometimes I don't really know how to answer that to myself. I don't know. Doing this is helping. Speaking out loud. Because when I talk out loud, ideas, you can dialogue with yourself. You know what you'd say to someone else if they were saying it. Yeah, but you're doing it. You're beating it. You're getting through it every day. That's the point. That's what makes us human. That's what makes humans human, their defiance, reality in the face of a chaotic universe that there's no reason it should even be here, but here you are, existing, breathing, dreaming, adding to this thing. Like defiance is like the defining characteristic of what a human being is. Like we, give, we shouldn't be here. We're mold on a rock, but we are. And in that and that is like an infinite beauty and a striving. When I, I am moved, there's a church next door to me that sings uh, every Sunday. They sing, and it's usually in Spanish. I think it's almost always in Spanish. I can't fully understand it. I'm getting better at understanding Spanish. But the most important thing is hearing what they're singing about, what they're trying to sing about, what every human who's been in a church tries to sing about, which is this thing, this idea of divinity, this irrational thing, existence, and its inherent tendency towards itself, towards being. And that that, just a tendency towards being, implies something good, something generative, and a a universe that favors that, some presence. Not necessarily a will. I've never believed in the idea of God as a willpower, but more like a a source, uh, a, a, a force like gravity. Both a force and a source. Something that is just the universe favoring existence over non-existence. And therefore things that exist and encourage existence generate and grow. Generosity, beauty, love, these things. Nurturing. And so I talk to myself. Here it is again. Again? 
I'm going to be fucking depressed again today. This thing's never going to go away. I'm going to have to deal with this every day or every year or every month or every, I don't know, maybe I'll go years and years and then it'll just pop up again stronger than ever. How do I remain? I don't even need another modifier. How do I remain in the face of that? And I talk to myself through it. I remind myself of the people and the things that rely on me or that I can bring to the world that are good, that I'm lucky enough to have this presence and this ability to channel some things sometimes to make the world a better place, that I'm so fortunate that I get to be here to help when I can, people who I can help, that just existing and thinking and dreaming like these inherently are the universe striving towards itself. I think of us as all beings, this, this Khalil Gibran quote uh, the, and from the prophet about children and that children are not your own. They're life's longing for itself. They describe it as a, an arrow shot from your bow. They're not yours. They're from you. They come through you. And I think all of us, this idea of a child of God or something like that, all of us, this progeny of existence, this thing that came after existence was here and now is part of it, that we are that. We are life's longing for itself. And that there is an inherent good to that that I can't explain and that I can't support and that defies logic. I think that's why depression is so insidious because it uses all your brain power and comes up with logical reasons why you are bad or shouldn't be here or you're a waste or something like that. And it comes up with logical reasons Ah, what's the point of anything good? It's all going to get sucked up by the sun one day, you know? Logical reasons to tell you nothing has meaning on a long enough timeline we're all dust. And there's this little spark that comes back to me, and it is in the eyes of people that I love, and it is in the tongue of Bodhi, of little dogs, you know? It is in art, it is in trees, and they're fucking leaves and branches, you know? It's in the sun, there's this thing that says, yeah, that's the point. The point is that there's no logic to it. It's just beautiful. That's what divinity is. That's the meaning of life. There you go. The meaning of life is embodied in you every day, waking up and saying, nice try, brain. I'm going to do another one. I'm going to do another day. And another one and another one. And sometimes you got to break down. I'm going to do another minute. I'm going to do another 10 seconds. Just to see what happens. Just to see what's here. Sometimes that's all I can do is observe what's happening. And in that is something. Theater is an art that was rooted in religious practices. And I always thought the weirdest thing about theater compared to other art forms, other art forms you can do in isolation. You can paint, you can make music by yourself. I don't know. To do theater, someone needs to watch it. It needs to be observed. It's something created by the people on the stage and the people viewing it. There's something inherently interactive. There's something essential about the observer to that having any meaning. 
And sometimes that is our role for the universe. When we feel meaningless, when we do nothing, you're not doing nothing. You're witnessing. You're present. You're observing. The whole thing, does a tree fall in the forest? Does it exist? Does it make a sound? If no one's there to see it, you're here to see it. Sometimes that's enough. Um, I talked to Erin Robinson on today's podcast, and she's wonderful. Uh, maybe this is partly why I'm in this headspace about divinity. I knew what I wanted to talk to Erin about was God. And that is a big, scary word for a lot of people. And one thing I've always liked about Erin, Erin, who I affectionately call Erin, 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 and I point this out, I, just, I was listening back and realizing this again, she is not afraid of big words. She doesn't say dislike or like, or she says hate and love, and she says God, and she has a relationship with God, and she's comfortable with that. And that is something that is, I find very moving, and I feel that a lot of us can learn from. Aaron's just a person. We're all just people. But Aaron comes from a different world than I do. We grew up in very different places. I got to know more about how she grew up in this, which was wonderful. She's seen a lot of darkness, and she's seen a lot of light. And she possesses all that. And I don't know that everybody who gets to see what Erin does in her hosting, she's a very professional host, she's very good at it, would know that, would receive that. Because I'm not sure how often in her performances it's allowed to come through. But it's powerful and it's in her. And I've always sort of detected it around the edges of her being and engaged it sometimes. We joke about it here. We, you know, we'd gotten to political things very early on in knowing each other, um, which were substantive more than sometimes other people because you just don't go there with people all the time in the world of pop culture, hosting and the internet and whatnot. But I appreciated so much that she would engage me on those things. And as I got to know her more, uh, I grew to have a great affection for Aaron. So um, I think I'll leave it at that. And I think I'll just let this thing start rolling. She's wonderful and she's powerful. And she has a connection and a personal relationship with a God in her life that I hope for the more secular uh, minded folks among, among y'all even the atheists, don't get turned off because something I found very profound was, I mean, this keeps happening. People are all doing very similar things. People only come up with so many things uh, and they give different names to the things that they do, but they tend to follow the same patterns. And her practices with God and her religious communities I was very struck, mimicked very much just basic mindfulness practices that I will use that I feel I learned from therapy or meditation or whatnot, something quote unquote, you know, secular and worldly. I just think the same way we talk about politics in here and the things that happen in the world and in culture. And it's never just like, let's like, well, let's just talk about mental health. That's all we're talking about here is about mental health. And that's it. It's all the same thing to me. When you're talking about mental health, how we feel about ourselves and the universe 
irrespective of quote unquote reality, things get very wishy-washy. The borders are very blurry. I think it's important that we all strive to hear truth no matter where it comes from, especially if it comes in clothes that you're not used to liking, a form that you're not comfortable with, or you associate with other things that you might find challenging. And I think that's part of my experience with Erin. She's open, and this was just a wonderful talk. She talks a little bit about um, some struggles she had with... uh, eating disorder stuff and she talks openly about um, experiences she had encountering death in her life. It's great. So I'm going to stop talking <laughs> now and you're going to hear a little song play and then you're going to hear more of me talking with my very good friend, the wonderful Aaron Robinson. Um, let's do it. You, I were excited. I were excited. Yeah, I was. I was excited to talk to you on this because my experience of you is like you're you're different than most of the other people that I know in LA, especially in our circles of uh, creative sort of profession, entertainment, whatever. And the most blunt way to put it is because you have a more conservative background than most people from the South. Where are you from the South? Yeah, I'm from North Carolina originally to this very small farm community. I was raised by people who worked in mills and like it wasn't, it was definitely very conservative for sure. And I think that thing too. So it became this combination of like, a there's that we would, very early on when I was at Clever, like I read Pop in your office when you were in like the Clever movies pretty much exclusively. You're paying much time there. And we would get into these very sudden, <laughs> so, sort of like... Sort of politically Sort charged. of snarky like things sometimes about yeah, politics or whatever. And then um, that was combined, I think just going on my own little weird thing here for a second, my own like romance about the South. Like I'm very much a Yankee. I'm very much like I grew up in Chicago in the Chicago suburbs um, in a town that was like very like Jewish diaspora. And then like in the, in the city doing a lot of theater, very blue, very blue, like Chicago. I mean, and Illinois is an interesting state because the way we kind of describe it is like, it, it always goes blue. It's considered a very democratic state. Obama's from Hyde Park, you know? But, um, like, if you go outside the city, you're in the South. Like, that's kind of how it feels politically and how it feels, like, in, you know, just the world. Your Southern sensibilities. Yeah, very Southern sensibilities. And actually, I think it's important to keep that in mind because, like, there were very racist policies, and there still are today, like, in terms of the way it works, like... I think this is a weird thing in like democratic places where like they like to think of themselves as very liberal and very above it all or whatever. But I know in my town, like you could see the segregation in the way people sat in the lunchroom and like where people would, who would exchange, interact with each other and including, it wasn't just along like race lines, but it was also like there was a fort, uh, like Fort Sheridan, uh, was in my town, which was like an arm. So they were like the military kids and they became a whole subunit. I don't know. But growing up in my Northern sort of life, uh, I kind of always had this romantic sense about the South, I, maybe because it's a place full of so much tragedy. Like there is so much like 
hardship that was there. It's been an agrarian society for so long because of the race stuff, because of the Civil War, because of like all the port cities like New Orleans, all these things that have so much, so it just feels so full of ghosts. And along with that comes a very like witchy, magical quality also. Mm-hmm. And in all the silly characterizations of Urn that I always do with you, um, that we do in like a silly way. Yeah. There is a kernel of truth for me. And I think you hold this in your presence is like a quality of a, like witchiness almost like this sort of like earth magic that comes with, I think, Southern people. And there's like dark and light sides to that. But it fascinates me. And I think the way that that uh, I'll finish my monologue soon and like you please <laughs> tell me about I'm your, your thoughts about you're this. Going. I'm on this. Train. Yeah. Let's see yeah. Where it goes. But like, um, I think uh I heard this thing on NPR once. I think it was on NPR. I always associate NPR. And, and it's one of those quotes that like, it's one of those things that you sticks in your memory. You're like, I, I've never found it again. I don't know if it's real or not, but I remembered it this way. And they were doing this thing about religion, about like different religions in America. And they were talking to this guy who does Santa Maria. It's like a voodoo priest. Mm-hmm. And they believe very strongly in spirits and not just and that he said he went to like a Pentecostal church and watched these people be ridden by the mm-hmm. spirit, the Holy Spirit. And when he's done, he said, what spirit was that? This voodoo priest to this you know, Christian guy. And they were like, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. And he goes, no, no, I know. But which one? Because they have like 170, whatever cataloged and known spirits that they describe and, and pray to and know. But to me, it's like a lot of religious expressions are like tomato, tomato <laughs> is like you, the impulse of like this connection to something bigger and darker and stranger and lighter and all these different things, uh, an inhuman otherness um, funnels through whatever's available in your society. And the South seems very in touch with that and very much so in the, in the way Christianity expresses in the South. I grew up Presbyterian, which is very different than like Southern Christianity. And I, and we would talk sometimes cause I know you have still connections. You still are, you still go to church, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. So my all of that like a huge part of fascinates me, me and th- yes, the faith. And so that, that would be my jumping off point of your thoughts around faith and how it relates to your mental health, your sense of self, mm-hmm. how you walk through the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like a nice tee up. It's very interesting. I always am so curious about how other people view me because I think when you're on the internet, you often only know what you know about yourself. You only hear like maybe what somebody writes in the comments, but having like a personal person look at you and say, this is how I see you. It's very, very interesting Mm -hmm. to me. So that was really neat. But, um, but yeah, this, the South is very interesting in that there are amazing things about it and there are some not so amazing things about it. And I think everyone is very aware of all the not so amazing things about the South with, you know, racial, just racism generally. I mean, my family dealt a lot with that because my mom is native American, Mm. full native American. And my dad's a white guy. And my dad and my mom started dating my mom's people, her Indian um, people did not want her dating my dad because he was white. And a lot of my dad's white friends were like, I don't want you dating a native American woman. And so it was very, at the time, in the 70s, it was very controversial that my parents were even dating. Mm. And so my dad, um, you know, he played in sports and about, I'd say like 60% of the population of where I'm from is predominantly black or Native American. Um, and so a lot of my dad's friends were not white. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I never grew up with 
my parents telling me to treat people of different races differently. Um, but there were definitely people who I knew personally who would, you know, say things like, we don't, we were a member of this pool that was like a private pool. And my dad was like one on the board and my dad told the National Guard members on a hot summer day, hey, if you guys want, just go jump in the pool. It's hot, you know. And some of those members happened to be of multiple races. And one of the members came to our house and knocked on the door and was like, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, there are black people in the pool. Mm. And my dad was like, uh-huh. What's the problem? You know, and they're like, well, we don't, we don't have black people in the pool. My dad was like, well, I don't care what you have. I have as many people as I want in the pool, any ethnicity that I want. He's like, people are people. I'm sorry, I don't see color, you know? And so I was from a family that was, I guess, kind of ahead of their time in the South mm. that way. Um, I also was raised by my grandparents predominantly who were Democrats. Yeah. And my parents were Republicans. So I was- <laughs> Even though you just said that, Democrats? Democrats. Like, is that like- it's kind of like not good no, <laughs> where no, you're from. No, but I just thought that it would be surprising to you because, no, yeah, sure. you know, you've seen me from well, this like conservative lens. But, yeah, my but it's also interesting because like the Southern Southern Democrats are like a long. I mean, Clinton was the Arkansas governor. And and also I have my own like just I mean, I should say as an aside, um, I, I know this is a mental health, like is the kind of what we're aiming at with this podcast, but I constantly bring in things about culture and politics because I really don't know how to separate the two things. Well, I think it affects people's mental health as well. Hardcore. Yeah. Like it, your worldview, your sense of self, your sense of, uh, I don't know, um, comfort and stability in the world around you. Yeah, totally. The constant, especially now with the internet, the inundation and the furthering like sort of divide and definition we have around like I identity uh, politics, you know, which, you know, some of that's like where you're from and what race you are. And, and some of it's straight up, you know, you say you're Christian or or I say uh, I, I, I'm identifying further and further left, you know, mm-hmm. socialist is like the best way to describe my stuff nowadays. Democrats are like just neocons at this point. Right, right, right. I don't know. Anyway, but so that's funny. Yeah, I know. So, okay. So, I mean, we're talking about two different things here, but no, right. the South- Sorry, I'll, we'll do that. <laughs> the South has- has a lot of bad stuff in it, sure, but I also saw the South as a really beautiful place where a lot of people loved on a lot of people. Mm. Um, I felt a lot of love for my community growing up. I saw, you know, my grandpa would grow all of our fruits and vegetables. And when we had enough to feed ourselves, we would mm. give away delicious, fresh fruit and vegetables to anyone who we put a sign in the front yard for yeah. people to come pick up food and you know, I saw a, a very tender, sweet side of the South. And so, but Christianity well, is a huge part of Yeah, well, even, even what you just said is, um, I had, my high school girlfriend was Texan and she would only, she had only been in Texas till she was like three or something like that. But her parents are very Texan and Texans are like, it doesn't matter if they're only till you're three, you're Texan forever, you know? Yeah. And uh, I remember talking to them and their thoughts, her mom especially, their thoughts about living in the North and in, in Chicago and that like this, yes, there's evident racism and racist policies historically in the South, but in the North, there's like almost a more insidious one of like, yeah, 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 we vote all, we say all the right things, but the way economic policies and housing, like uh, zoning policies, is very racist, very, very racist. And and most of the people who, of, of one race, like aren't even 
they don't really have friends who are of other races and stuff, you know, whereas in the South, there's a lot more of like multiculturalism in a practical way. And you go like, I don't know, a lot of people I know from the South are, are a lot less like ge- in genuine reality. Like they might not, they might not sp- speak in the way that's considered politically correct now, but mm-hmm. in practical like relationship and everyday existence and experience of other human beings, they're, they have much more diverse communities and sense of the world. So even that, what you just said is like really interesting. And I think a lot of people don't think about like this more loving thing that can exist in the South. I miss that Southern community more than anything. I think it's the one thing that keeps me thinking that I won't live in LA forever because I love how kind everyone was around me growing up. Of course there are outliers in every community, but for the most part I had just wonderful experiences um, with the community there. So yeah, I mean, I love the South. I grew up there. Um, but you know, I'm in LA now. And so I really do feel like living in the city has changed my perspective of the world in a way that I wasn't exposed to when I lived in North Carolina in a good way. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm interacting with people with so many more nationalities and cultures and I'm learning a lot about so many different people. So I'm grateful that I was able to get out, but I do sometimes miss. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk more about that, I guess. I think that's interesting because I think how, how does that affect your sense of self and the world and like, like who do you think you are before you're coming to LA and then how you interact with this space. That's like this new one. That's yeah. so different. Like what, what's that like? Um, I always had this kind of gypsy spirit about me. I always knew that I was never going to be where I was for very long in my life. And so no, I was just checking the levels. You can okay, cool. Sorry. Um, I had this gypsy spirit where I always knew I wasn't going to be in one place for very long, you know? And so moving to LA, I was like, Oh yeah, LA, it's going to be great. You know, but I took for granted the pacing of life that I once lived back home. And, you know, there's so many people here and, you know, people don't care about people often in this city. And so it did kind of give me a sense of depression in a way, because Mm. I expect a lot out of people I've come to realize in my old age. And I expected a lot from people who are around me who really let me down in this city. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's, that continues to be my experience. Really? City. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I actually joined a church in LA and it's a kind of a small church and it was so diverse And at first I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is very different. And then I got to know everyone and race is a huge issue amongst a lot of people in my community, in my church community. A lot of people um, struggle with racism in 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 a very open way. A lot of people came to this church and they were like, listen, I have issues with judging people based on their skin color and I don't want to do that anymore. And so I've been a part of this community where people are dating races of people that they actually hated growing up and now they're about to get married to them or are married to them or having children Mm. with people of different races. And it's so beautiful to see people work through, um, work through kind of like the nurture part of themselves where they're like, you know, I was taught this, but I don't, that's not true. And I actually want to come out of that mindset, come out of that thinking. And so that's been a really cool, beautiful thing to see. Well, you just said that's, that's a great phrase. I I just want to like pause on that, that to work through your nurture because that's so real. I, I think about a lot like, um, 
you know, people really are just the sum of their experiences. They can only know what they've learned, what they've been taught and what they've seen. And living in our culture now, it it feels very like, I think some of it's a little founded because the extreme outliers who tend to be the, the, the mouthpieces of policies and expressions and they get a lot of focus and they do feel so far gone that you just are disgusted with them. And so the idea of just like someone's canceled because they're problematic is easy and, and also kind of makes sense in some of it because we have to have thresholds. There are some people who are just so unabashedly terrible that you're like, forget it. But the hallmarks and dog whistles of their language trickle down. And I think there are a lot of people who, what you just said, like, if they if there was space for them to be wrong, if there was space for someone to, in a caring way, understand that's their nurture mm-hmm. and say, hey, maybe you want to look at it a, a different way. Um, and not in a punishing way. No, that's, in a I think, very I think like there's a, non-judgmental well, there's a, way. There's a resentment, right? Like it's hard for us to hear that we're doing something hurtful or wrong that we didn't intend and then and then go like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I think we tend to be so punished for that that we get so defensive and go like, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. What do you, what do you mean? And then it can, it can be so intense if you, if you are persecuted or punished for it that you just go like, well, actually, maybe I do think that. I'm just going to, fine. Stand on it. Yeah. And that's like, seems to be rewarded too to double down on your wrongness this, this day and age. So it's hard to find communities and spaces of people who, who still have room in them for the ability to work through your nurture. Yeah. And maybe, maybe like, and even with ourselves, like even in a weirdly personal introspective way, like the patience to work through your nurture with yourself. Like, I mean, we learn a lot of ways to beat ourselves up and hate ourselves, you know, all through childhood even if they're not from your family, even if they're just from the cruelty of like society or a school group or or anything, there's so many nurtures that it is very hard to find the patience to, I don't know, be gentle with yourself and like forgiving with yourself and of others to like try to get to a better version of yourself. Yeah. I just think that, you know, hatred is one thing that will hold us all back. What does that mean to you when you say hatred? Well, when you look at someone or speak to someone who doesn't necessarily agree with you or who maybe has a perspective that makes you feel ill. When right. You, when, you, when you're like, oh, I can't even believe that person would even think such a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, our gut instinct is, especially in 2018, is to just hate someone for their belief or mm. just hate someone for saying something. But I think it's so much harder and also rewarding to say, you know what? I don't, I, I definitely disagree with that perspective, but I'm not going to hate that person. I'm going to hate that thought. I'm going to hate that idea. And I'm actually going to open up a dialogue with that person. Mm. And maybe in a loving way, I can change someone's perspective because from this community that I'm a part of, I've seen so many people's perspective change, not because someone yelled at them or told them how bad they were, but for just loving them through it, calling them out, Mm. being honest, saying, Hey, that's the wrong perspective. But I actually still love you anyway, and we're going to get through it. And that's just how I pr- try to yeah. look at my life. And that's that where so hard that to is do. where my faith comes into play so hard because huh. I know that without my relationship with God that I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be strong enough to stand on that principle, you know, and I always think about this too, you know, 
Christianity as a church or whatever you like, we could talk about that for hours, but I try to really take it all back to Jesus Christ. And he only hung out with thugs. He only hung out with murderers, prostitutes, people who were bad people. And he loved them through those decisions and they became his best friends in life. And, you know, if that's what he did, then that's what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, but it does allow me to have freedom Hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, it's interesting, like... Even even you saying Jesus Christ is like, oh no, like I'm like, I, oh, people are going to fucking turn their brains off just by hearing the words Jesus Christ. People do it when I say God. Is That's it, because you know, religion. That's well, religion. Yes, that to exactly. It's hard to separate out, especially Christianity from its political connotations yeah, nowadays like totally. as a as a political force because it's a because the people who have hijacked the rather beautiful ideas present in christianity they're separate worlds to me dude, mentally like i really. can separate my faith from my politics yes. every single time i um, wish other people could i wish i wish we could i wish the spiritually inclined would help that too because it it truly is I think the people who are doing the like evil stuff in the name of Christianity the like divisive and oppressive stuff and and not just that like we can we can even back away from that the crimes they're committing against their own followers like uh, economically serious economic violence like taking advantage of like people who have nothing and getting them to give all their money away to them is vile and if we could figure out a way to get people to like separate that well there are there are churches out there that are doing that. There are communities, like there are churches that are like really bad and taking advantage of people. And I was a part of a church community that did that growing up. And I like walked away from Christianity because I had such traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. in it. Um, I always still believed in God and I was like, okay, God, I know you're real, but these church people, I can't deal with these people. Um, And there are amazing communities like church, like leaders who I love, like Judas Smith um, is a huge, very popular pastor, but um, there are people who, are really operating in the way that I think we should be operating as believers, not in the like traditional hell, fire and brimstone way, but in a way that's just loving people regardless of how messy they may be and not trying to like force anything on them. You know, that's, uh, I have a lot of friends who are in AA or, uh, you know, I've, I've associated with like a lot of those people. I've been in Allen on, I've done some 12 step stuff myself. And one of the things I've always been so impressed about with that program is like, there's no um, proselytizing. There's no like trying to convince people, oh, come check this out. There's no like, you know, it, there's a kindness that if people get a sense of something, they'll maybe say something like, um, I think like Zeke who was on here talking about his experiences with it, you know, is will be like, he might float it and say, hey man, if you're ever interested in this thing, um, I do this thing and let me know if you want to go, I'll take you to a meeting. But that's it. And it's never again mentioned. It's like this thing. And, the, and even if you start going, no one's going to harass you about coming around and being like, where have you been? It's like, there's something mysterious that no one can even explain. People who do it even will be like, we don't know why it works. It just does. You just show up and it keep, and it does. And I truly believe it just has to do with like, my experience at least was like, you go sit in a room and you listen to people talk and you hear your thoughts coming out of other people. And you're like, oh my God, 
I'm not alone in this. Connect. Yeah. And I, I think like communities of believers, whether they're secular or spiritual or whatever, mm-hmm. is maybe all centered in that and in, in being especially in this day and age with like our urban life where we're all in our little boxes, literally our little apartments and don't know the people next door. It's this like forced, you know, version of a community where like we're all we're gonna all go to a space and try to get to know each other and try to see each other in each other and share that feeling mm-hmm. you also you also said uh, you know i was gonna say for me with christianity I'm, I'm i'm grateful that i did so much sunday school when i was a kid and i'm so grateful that i learned so much uh so many stories of the bible and so much about the bible in these parables because if you can even just approach them as literature, which most people have no problem doing, we learn all of our lessons from books and stories and novels that stick with us since we're kids. There's really powerful ideas. And and when you were talking about this meeting people who are different and who are problematic and who are bad with love, how hard that is to do because we want justice. Uh, we want like, we believe people should get what they deserve. We, we you know, <laughs> like some comeuppance or something like that. Um, which is uh, the story of the prodigal son, like always was like very beautiful and, and hard to understand because there's so many layers. I also think most of these parables, most fables in general, aren't actually about outside people. It's about a thing inside yourself that all of us have a prodigal son inside of ourselves, And we also have a good son and that like we need to be able to love the part of ourself that strayed and that fucked up and always fucks up yeah. and say like no matter how much we fuck up that it's a personal thing that you will love that part of yourself and say you're, you're welcome back here anytime and you can always be better. But also what you're talking about in a very practical way, I mean, people are the sum of their experiences. And if somebody comes to you with a, a, a way about them and, and you answer that with violence, that's even emotional violence, even like intellectual violence, that is the only thing they've known their whole life. They've gotten very good at that. And that's all it's ever going to be then is this yeah. battle. The ability to truly love and forgive and like leave possibility for them to be someone better is really tough. It's hard, but here's here's how I do it. So I really work on my actual relationship with God. I don't really focus so much on like my relationship with my pastor and my relationship. I mean, I, I have great relationships in my community, but at the at the end of the day, my existence here on this planet, is this going to bother you? Oh, it, that's life. We live in a city. Okay, There's sirens. Um, my existence on this planet. That's the thought police coming to take you away because <laughs> I've said, you're, you're being religious in a liberal <laughs> city. No, no, I no. Um, my relationship with God at the end of the day is the most important thing. And I also believe I have a purpose. If I woke up today, there's a reason for my existence and I have to build my relationship with God, I think first and foremost. And if that's strong in a moment where I want to lash out because I'm mad at something, I really do mentally say, okay, God, what do you want me to do right now? Because I really feel this way Hmm. and I don't want to, I don't want to be mean, but like, I really want to say something. Like I had this moment with a person, I had a really horrible, emotionally traumatizing experience with someone. I'm, um, not to go into detail, but I confronted them about it. And I remember leading up to that moment of confrontation being like, oh, I'm going to give it to him. I've mm. all my points laid out because I was in the right, you know, and um, I was like, I'm just going to lay into him. And I remember sitting down with that person 
and being like ready to go and having a thought of literally, I feel like I heard God tell me, tell that person you love them right now. And I was so, my whole, I started sweating and I was, I was like, I can't believe that like God's telling me to tell this person I love them, but I had all my bullet points planned out. I'm so angry right now. I don't want to tell this person I love them. That's not what I want to do. And I did. And in that moment, I got emotional and I let go of so much hatred and so much anger that Mm. I had. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm so glad that I was so in tune with my relationship with God that I was able to, in the moment where I was so angry, tell someone that I love them and let go. Mm. There's so much power in that. And 22 year old me would have never done that. She would have showed up and just said whatever was on her mind. And I think as I've gotten older, I've really tried to lean into, okay, God, what's my purpose today? Who can I love on? How can I love on them? And I don't know. You know, there's, I always think about this thing that it, it feels like a very Southern aphorism. I don't know, but like I always think about all the time is like, um, when you hate someone, you're just giving them free rent in your heart. Yes. I think about that so so much and, and, you know, and I, you know, it's pretty trite. I feel almost at this point, but worth repeating is like that love and hate are really not opposite ends of a spectrum. They're like two sides of the same coin at the same end of the spectrum. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's such an emotional intensity that you're holding for this thing that like, you know, it, it, that it's, it really is obviously distinguishable in its, you know, effect on the world in a massive way. But like, it's a lot different than it, it's just so much closer to itself than um, indifference than apathy. It's a decision apart. I mean, it is. It is like you are thinking a lot about this thing. You're holding a lot about this thing. You're keeping it inside of you so much. I, it's interesting. I'm, it's striking me how easily you use the word hatred um, to describe this thing. I, I realizing like the same way. I think maybe I don't feel squeamish about love. I say love a lot. Like um, and a lot of people. I think a lot of people, you know, are, are hesitant to use words like love or God or hatred because they're these big magical ideas that feel like they feel like immature they, at this point. You know what I mean? They feel like um, too big, too big. Yeah. Like like we're cooler than that. Yeah, we get it too. We're like smarter than that. We're yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading a little bit. I started reading this book uh, called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and um, they talk very early in it about like academia whitewashing language um, in this way where they were like, well, why, why maybe don't call it, what if you called it like pedagogy of the disenfranchised, you know, cause why? And, and the people being like, it has to be called the oppressed because a strong word, it names an oppressor. We're not talking about a group of people that just wound up in this way. We need to use words that mean what we mean because yeah. that are uncomfortable till here, yeah. you know? And, um, and things like that, like, really talking about like you know that like two wolves metaphor the one about like you have two wolves in your heart like love and fear or whatever and and uh which one gets uh which one wins and the one that you feed more is the one that wins i i kind of feel that way about like this idea we're talking about like like we do hold in ourselves these if we can't name love and hate and fear big like uncool concepts, concepts that are too big to be expressed in a world that is sarcastic and clever and fun. You know what I mean? And like living through this very self-protective and understandable bubble. But if we can't name these things, we'll never be able, like we'll remain numb to them and never understand this 
toxicity, this, this, this ugh, thing that chews at the edges of you that never feels like complete until you can start talking about big concepts like love and divinity and hate and where that exists in you and what you're doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I've always been a lover. Mm-hmm. Like I love love. Um, but you know, unfortunately we're human beings and we have hatred in us and we do things that are nasty to each other and we treat each other poorly. And I'm guilty of that. You know, I I do that as well. And I really, but I don't want to do that. You know, I really fight, you know, even just being like, Oh, I really wake up every day being like, okay, God, what do you want from me? That doesn't mean I go through life like the Pope, like blessing people I walk by. I'm, you know, I don't do the best things all the time, but I know that if I just, if I didn't try to be better, if I didn't try to see the good in people that I work with or that I surround myself with, then it would make me crazy. So it's almost for my own mental health that that I do that. And those decisions are hard decisions to make to love people when they're being hateful to you or showing hatred to other people. Well, because it's a choice you're making about how you are. Like I think people, when they decide to hate somebody because they deserve it, they think of it as a thing that they're doing to somebody else and don't realize that that is a thing that you are giving away free rent in your heart, right? Like that when you choose because they deserve it to hate someone all day long, like (laughs) you're tricking yourself if you think that that's about them. Exactly. That's a thing that's affecting you every moment of every day. Yeah, that's interesting because I, you know, here's here's I think the trap and the, and the thing about it that in in terms of like real politic, right? Like because these are beautiful concepts to be forgiving to others and ourselves and whatever. But let's just focus on others for a second. I think though the narrative, like we get so wrapped up in these narratives that we sometimes become so obsessed with forgiving the oppressor or like the the wound the one who's been fucked up because it's a beautiful redemption story that we want to be part of that we forget like that 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 individual does need to go through a good faith attempt at being better for us to be obsessed with their redemption well, here's- like you know tr- like we shouldn't be obsessed with saving people who aren't willing to come to the table and be better earnestly. Like what you're describing about your conversations with God that you check in and go like, okay, how do I feel? That speaks to like, I, what you're talking about there, like to me, it speaks to like, I I feel very spiritual about things, but like, I believe in a divinity that lives inside of me and every other person and that it's the same potato, potato thing, tomato, tomato. I I think that God talks to every single person, whether you are a Christian person or not. I do. Well, whether you interpret it as like God or not, even if you just think of it as your best self inside of you, the, the, The the version of you that could be, yeah. The ability to check in with that, and answer to that speaks to a true good faith type of morality. That's the type of person who will be problematic, but try to learn to be better when they find out they're hurting people and things like that. I think the, the difficulty is like, what do you do with people who, who don't have that good faith attempt to be better? And then realizing that so many of us who do have a good faith thing have a tendency to project that savior mentality to try to like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like more interested in the redemption story of the bad guy than the protection story of the wounded. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point in your life, you have to, I mean, that's where my faith comes in. Like trust that, that things will work out the way that they're supposed to. I mm. mean, we have a justice system. I think that there are, you know, it's not perfect, 
clearly, and I've watched so many doc- documentaries on Netflix. Right. Like, why is that person in prison? And why isn't this person in prison? Right. You know? Um, but at some point I have to pick what I want to focus my life on, you know? And personally for me, my goal in life is to raise people up, to love people and treat them the way that I, I should be treating them. And maybe it's someone else's goal in life to be a politician, to go change mm. policy, you know, to become a police officer and change that whole field or whatever that, you know, everybody's calling is different. Yeah. And I just can't take on all the callings because right. I'm not gifted to do that. I'm really gifted to love people. And I know that's the lane that I'm, I'm best in. Cause I think that everybody, you know, a lot of people in Christianity are like, you know, if you're not a missionary, you know, you're not taking the word of God out to the people. You're not doing God's work. And I'm like, that's not true. Like God created us all to be different because we all have different skill sets. Well, it also seems like you're missing the fucking point. If, if you think that doing the work of, of godliness in the world is about getting people signed up for your club and not about, Raising people, people out, loving them, yep. like being being the values in the world yep. rather than which I think is very human. It's very human to like associate yourself to with a with a party, with an association, with, agree a, with me. a club. Yeah. yeah. And say like, hey, be in our club. And then it becomes about like it's just like being a fan of like a band or something like that. <laughs> like, oh, what do you think of these albums? Like, what's, what's your favorite point. verse? You know, yeah. like I, I think that that's very real and very human to understand. But that is, I think, the misguidance that does get into like the political idea of religion rather than the spiritual implication, the teachings of just like the idea of love as the answer to problems, you know, and not just the answer to problems, but the compass and the choices that you make. Really? And the more that you spend time like meditating or in prayer or like, you know, reading things that are positive and uplifting, the more time you spend in that space, the easier those decisions Mm. are as, as you get older, you know? And so, well, there's a habit I've tried to cultivate that I think is very difficult. And when I can do it now, I feel very proud of myself, but which is the self-inquiry one. And it's the one I sort of implore everybody, you know, who has a strong opinion or a strong hatred about anything is like the check-in, the daily check-in, the moment-to-moment one. You have a strong reaction about something to go like, why am I feeling this? Why do I do this? Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly the same thing as, as checking in with God. Like, yeah. like whatever the mechanism is for you the remarkable thing is to be in an extremely activated place and then go, Oh, I want to do something really fucking mean right now. Can, what do I do? Yeah. I mean, also too, I will say when I was a kid, I hated the church. It was terrible. Um, but I was super depressed. A friend of mine was on his way to my house to play during the summer and he got hit by a car right before turning down my street. So on one Saturday morning, I woke up to this traumatic event and then my mom's sister, a baby sister died of diet pills like two weeks later. My my mom was like, became an alcoholic almost immediately. And I went through a really dark time at 14 and I remember just feeling so, I mean, just completely depressed. And I remember crying in my bed for weeks on end. And there was this moment where every time I talk about it, I get emotional, but like there was this moment that was palpable that I literally heard God tell me in my ear, like as loud as any, if a person was standing in the room with me, don't give up. I have something very special for you. Now I'm this little girl in the middle of nowhere in a farm community, no money, like, you know, no dream. I'd never done theater. I had no dreams of doing what I do now for my job. And I remember in that moment just being like, Oh, 
And everything in my soul changed, and everything in my heart changed. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that that was a real encounter that I had. And so the rest of my life has been proof. I mean, and I have not worked for much in my life. I have to say I've worked hard in the opportunities I've been given, but to get to where I am in my career and where I've been, none of that has anything to do with how great I am or how talented I am. It all has to do with the fact that I really feel like God told me I was on this path that he had planned for my life. And if I would just sit back and do my best to be my best, that he would take me where he wanted me to go. And it's not been easy. And I've had some real low times, but it was that moment that really changed my heart. Not religion, not people, not churches, but this encounter with the, the creator who I believe created me to be on this planet. Mm. Um, that was the reason why I chose to, I chose to step out in my life because I knew there's a purpose for it. And every day that I'm alive, I want to honor that. Like I want to say, okay, God, well, you told me there was a purpose. I'm not going to take this for granted. I'm not going to take the people around me for granted. How can I love them? So it's very deep for me, but it really is important to me. I feel like it's such an important part of my mental health. It's such an important part of my relationships with the people who I love the most and the people who I don't love the most. Mm. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know why the last part hit me, but that like, that there is a really, that's a good story. That's a really good story that you told very, like it came really suddenly as feels very real. I feel <laughs> very emotional about it too. No, it's very Sorry. beautiful. No, it's not Every an apology. Every time I thing. say it, I cry because that's Make how me real cry. it was. It was, and I don't think I've had many moments like that in my life. Like I, I had one like that. Did you? Yeah. I, that's why I'm interested in it is like, I mean, yours was, came, in a place that you were surrounded by like death and that's like so fucking nutty. It's interesting. I, I sometimes wonder my brother's like that. My brother's life has been touched with death so much, like very close friends dying since childhood, like nine. And, and I think it was the first one and uh, you know, whatever. And it kept happening. And he was sat with my grandfather when he died, they were very close and he was there with that with my grandma. And I wonder sometimes, cause we're so, we live these parallel lives, but some people are just touched. Death is around them. And in many ways, my brother is like so made to handle it. Like he's very much a leader. He's very much a lover in this way that is, he's, he's not like bogged down with, um, dumb shit, like thoughts about people that I have that like stop me from being close to a lot of people, some people, Mm -hmm. some people, he just like sees practically what people need and what to do. And I don't know, you're, generosity of spirit that you display and that you're, you know, expressing is like, I wonder sometimes, I know I go, I I understand that that the world is chaos. I understand that the universe is this thing that we can't understand or comprehend and that it might just be a simulation and it might truly be (laughs) chaos that we just read narratives into because the only way we can like comprehend meaning or make sense of our world or because we just need to lock down some understanding so we can get through a day. I, you know, all this fucking boils down to tomato tomato shit again where it's like this idea of meaning this idea of like being a person chosen because you can deal with that like you you are the one who can take that burden is something that I've always 
felt was very important. I will just say too, my, I was like in high school and I was the oldest of my siblings and my, my dad, my family's just whatever was crumbling, falling apart. There was like a lot of weird stuff and some drug and mental breakdown stuff. And there's like whatever and a lot of weird stuff. But, uh, I do remember being like in a depression. It was probably like the first times like depression was really manifesting in my life. I mean, I feel like I associate around puberty is when like that started to show up in my life in a real fucking way that I, I just, it's the funniest, but I was like literally just peeing. I was in the bathroom, like it was weird. And I felt like a physical presence, like on my back, like a hand on my back, like the universe putting a hand on my back and everything just getting like so light, like a take the breath out of you lightness. That was like, <sighs> you can't deny it. I was like, this is real. You know, even if it's just, even if I did, like I was getting to this fucking thing about science versus faith. Like it's so silly. Like the idea that if there was a creator that like the idea that the big bang would counteract the creation of the universe by a creator. Like it's the same fucking thing, dude. It's like the same thing. The mathematics of figuring out the math of how to make a fucking remote control, do whatever it does to make ones and zeros, make videos, you know, like that's the same thing as witches, like figuring out how a toadstool mixes. You know what I mean? Like you just figure out a weird, uh, formula of how the universe works. Anyway. So whether it's actually some, fucking spaghetti monster putting its hand on me and paying and t- gaze turning its Sauron's eye to me for a moment in benevolence or a survival instinct that's embedded in my brain that was like to keep this organism alive we're gonna cascade fucking serotonin and dopamine when it reaches the place where it wants to kill itself and go oh and you feel like the president i mean it doesn't fucking matter like it's the same thing you call it well i I mean, I truly believe, like, there's no judgment in whoever wants to believe what they want. But I truly believe, I truly, truly believe that is God. And I think that I've had friends who've had um, encounters with what they believe to be an angel. I had a, a friend who was in a, a car accident and was about to um, run off this bridge and saw a, a light in a, like, a creature stop her car um and for the longest time i was like whatever but um my husband has this crazy story when he was like a kid in um sunday school class growing up there was a kid in his sunday school class who the teacher was like everybody let's i don't know his name but they're like let's pray around little billy and matt is a kid he's like i had no idea so we all just put our hands on little billy and prayed and he's like and i felt like heat all over me mm. and he's like and I started crying he's like because I felt like this presence about me that there was something in the room and he was like you know I was too young for my parents my parents to explain what was happening he said but two weeks later they came to the front of the church and said that like their son they had a, um, an operable brain tumor that disappeared and was fucking insane my husband is just forever changed by that encounter and so I don't think that everyone huh. has encounters like that, but you know, like well, that—that that is the difficulty. Yeah, it's like if somebody doesn't have an encounter like that, it's not. They'll ne- How do you? But then, but then, to me, I guess the the point becomes maybe moot is we get focused so much on convincing them of the reality of this thing yeah. instead of just doing 
coming to the other conclusion, which is like what 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 uh, humanists, you know, if, if you have very like um, secular humanist values, you come to the same conclusions, which are not nihilistic, do whatever the fuck you want, existential, bad faith existentialism. You come to the same conclusion, which is like people deserve to be loved. People deserve sovereignty and freedom. People deserve generosity and kindness. And we should care for each other. Yeah. Because if you have had the experience of being saved, you know, which I don't mean that as like the loaded term that it is, but it's fucking right. the, the right term to use. If if something saved your life, whether it was a person or a sort of divinity or whatever the fuck it was, I believe somewhere inside of you grows the the knowledge that you are to save other people given the opportunity. I totally, totally agree. And I really believe that every single person has a purpose. And I try to see purpose in people. And that is something that I think when we live in a country like the United States and we are scrolling Instagram, it's so easy to see ourselves and our likes or our views or whatever. But I really want to challenge people to try to see purpose in other people because as soon as you shift that perspective somebody comes to hook up your cable right like spectrum or time Warner cable people hate that you know and they come and they and you're like annoyed or whatever but if you take that moment to like see that purpose person's purpose and be like okay this person woke up today so they must have been created for a purpose what is that today it really does like change your life. Like there are people around me who are atheists. There are people around me who are agnostic. There are people around me who haven't done great things, but seeing their purpose is so amazing. Mm. Even in their bad stuff or their imperfect stuff, um, when you can really look at people's purpose, it really can change. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think we're coming to this thing of like, people get so bogged down on the mechanism or the reason or the label that you're, you know, putting behind what you're doing instead of like the net result of like, what are you doing? Are you helping people? Are you trying to amplify people? Are you trying to be a presence of justice and generosity in your world? Give in every micro opportunity or not. Yeah. And that's so interesting. I don't know. You want to move into like the question? I'm going to move into the questioning yeah. part. We're going to like do a sort of abrupt, but um, yeah, let's. Otherwise, I think we might just yeah, cry. For yeah, the next I know two this hours. is really good. Um, let me uh, take. A, <laughs> I'm going to pee really quick, and then we'll get into my questions. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm just going to remind myself of the questions I I asked you earlier that I asked. I on tried this not to really read them too much, honestly. Yeah, that's good. I I wanted to. I just like to plant them a little, just to like plant seeds. Uh, the first one, like, this is like my six quick cues section, and I didn't review what my six quick cues were previously i just like kind of like remembered and figured those are probably ones that are important to me so this is an evolving thing these are the six quick cues for now um first one's have you ever been diagnosed with any like mental illness disorder things or you know in a therapy kind of setting um you know i've never been diagnosed by a professional but i do know that i have gone through like i mentioned earlier seasons of depression um just because i can feel that in my body you know i don't need a doctor to tell me that i'm depressed from time to time and it's something that i deal with more and more frequently as i get older Mm -hmm. and it's just something that i try to keep in check um but it's it is very hard to do sometimes but when i was in college um i struggled with 
an eating disorder. I was anorexic for a while. And then I had a weird random OCD counting disorder Hmm. that was undiagnosed, but I would just like count letters and signs and it would give me kind of anxiety if if a word didn't have an even amount of letters in it. Weird. If there was like, if I couldn't draw a line visually down the middle of it mentally, you know, but I had to like really that persist. No, no. And it's never come back. It was just Do you a feel phase of my life. Like the way you were describing it, did it feel like connected to the anorexia stuff? Yeah, it was during the same time in this very much my life felt out of control. I was in college. Freedom for the first time had a lot of pressure on me. I was like preparing for Miss North Carolina, which was a pageant. So I had Really? To, yeah. I had like a committee of people. You did the pageant stuff, huh? I did. Damn. I did. I know. It's, I don't talk about it much just because really? it really, it didn't. I mean, the only thing I know about you from your past is your big Papa Pump interview, My, which is that was, oh, <laughs> wild. Pump. Wild. Yeah, I think it about it all the time. Age. It was during that era. Um, I did pageants, but not, not, I only did like two and I just happened to do really well. Cause I had a lot of people around me who was, who were coaching me. So I had like a lot of pressure to, to perform well. And, um, you know, so I think that was why I was going through that during that time of my life. But I've never been diagnosed, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm so constantly self-checking myself mm-hmm. mentally that I don't feel like I ever get to a place that I'm too far where I'm like, I can't pull myself out of this. But I have felt recently like, you know what? I might I might reach that place. Mm. You know, you do have a, th- I think there's a threshold of people who can tolerate a certain level of pressure. Yeah. But I think there is a point where we cross it and we need, you know, we need more than just ourselves. There's more. Well, I was going to say like, does that, were you, did you have your check in with God thing when you were then? During, like when you're no. feeling anorexic? No, because during that time I was so against the church. I mean, I still loved God. I believed in God, but I just, I didn't know what spiritual tools that I had readily available yeah. to me at the time. And so, no, I didn't. And hope I wish I had yeah. been in that mindset. I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to like strip away divinity. Like as I've expressed, like I think they're the same thing. Just what language you choose to use with tools. Like I think, you know, people are just comfortable with what they're comfortable with probably because of political problems. But the self check-in ability or the self re- like by having got, like I always just think like, it's important to understand yourself as, as a part of a bigger thing and not just only this thing that contains the whole universe. And I've always said, uh, I don't think I've ever had a eating disorder, but I have a lot of disordered eating. There's like, I don't think it's an accident that I'm always on some program or another. I'm keto now, or I'm doing intermittent fasting you or, I'm, you know what I mean? I've yeah. noticed that I, I, I have one of my close friends from the first, uh, a, a year or two ago, I remember her saying like, um, it was, she was just like, I was like, I'm doing this thing, whatever it was right now at that given time, paleo probably. And she was like, you always got to struggle, you know? And I was like, oh fuck. You know? There's something really beautiful about that for you. Well, for me there is, but, th- but I think it is for me, it's this interaction with this line of like, I do feel like discipline's hard for me, you know, time management, presence, intentionality. It's, it's hard for me to stay grounded in the world. So I think it helps me with that. Like helps me like bring me back to what am I doing? How am I nourishing myself? What am I, Regiment. you know, something, Regiment. yeah, something resembling structure, but sorry. But, um, I do think the dark side of it is related to what 
I, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor or whatever, but you know, from my understanding in the world so far is like this, what was anorexia like for you? Like, like, a that and the OCD thing feel connected as like a control, like a, a way to like take control of things. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember feeling it also allowed but, but me I to guess feel, it, it allowed me to feel, um, better about myself. It ma- allowed me to feel, feel elevated and better than my peers. Cause Ooh. I remember this moment where I was in college and this girl was eating like frozen yogurt or something next to me. And I remember thinking, she's going to be so fat and I'm going to be so skinny. Oh. And that was a thought that I had. And it was a thought that I was like, that I liked like it. And I, that thought came to me multiple times until I realized I was sick. I think that that's very common about depression these days too, in a weird, like, um, mean like, okay, it's become like a meme to like that. We all want to kill ourselves and we all have depression. Everyone's like all the time, you know? And I'm, I think I've also started to see the meme arise and I hope this movement builds where it's like, Hey, let's leave like, Hey, let's start, uh, let's leave fucking like romanticizing depression in 2017 now. And in the future, we're trying to get better. Okay. It's not funny anymore. It's really killing people, you know? But that, uh, one of my friends, uh, we, we talk about like, um, you if you're a you associate intelligence with depression because only a dumb person would think everything's okay you know like by being smart you see how fucked up things are and that makes you sad I you know see. what i'm saying and that like i think a lot of people who have our, our afflictions there is a part of us that likes to go like uh, well we're much more dimensional and tough and going through stuff than these normal people yes. who are making these choices and it becomes like this secret power it's a power thing. like you're saying about like she's going to just eat that little fucking shit i'm so much better than her because yes. i have discipline or whatever you know yeah and i think that that when I really started battling the eating stuff myself, I really started pushing hard to be better and do better. That thought did change. So I do believe, like, I do believe there are lots of spirits, a lot of them not good. I do think there was a spirit of, of like, control that I had that was, like, when I started working on dealing with the food stuff, it kind of, it kind of fell away. Did it have anything to do with, like emptying out like controlling what's inside of you or what you feel you know because the metaphor of anorexia is really fascinating to me of like like you're you've you've kind of said already that you you were not really in communication with god for yourself no you know which i'm just gonna stop equivocating what that term means right like whether it's the universe or some meaning or sense of a bigger family that you're part of god and so there can be like an emptiness there that is almost like m- mimicked by like what you're trying to act out. Well, I'm going to just get you, you know, I, I, to me also, I think like if you don't hold a place for love inside of you, just hate takes, takes it. Well, I mean, I truly believe truly, truly that there is an enemy in this world. And I think that there is God. And I do think at any given moment in time, there is always a battle happening between good and evil. And I do believe that if you aren't filling your life and yourself up with good, with goodness, that it does leave you vulnerable to evil, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really feel like that happened to me during that time where I was vulnerable, you know, and I think that this like enemy attack on my life was, Oh, I'm going to attack her mind. I'm going to attack, um, you know, her, Mm. um, 
her, her, her health, her physical health. So I think that that definitely had a lot to do with it for sure. Yeah. And also I was in this transition of life that a lot of people go through where they're like, I don't know what to do with this freedom, this responsibility. I had full ride scholarships, I had two of them. Wow. So I was making money going to college, but I had to keep a certain, uh, a certain grade. And so I had this pressure and that was going to miss North Carolina. So there was just so, so many transitions I was going through that left me extra vulnerable. And I just think it was like the perfect storm of all of those yeah. things. But it was that like, was that like, uh, I mean, you described earlier this like agricultural agrarian sort of like poor life and people dying around you. I mean, and if I'm getting too personal, you can tell me stop. But like, was, was that like, was there a thing try, like pushing you to get out of there like that? I mean, you're all the way on the other side of the country now, you know, by that point you're doing those, those in a literary, like American girl story sense that has a lot of like cachet to it of, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to propel out of here. You know, you know, I had shades of that, but truly I didn't feel like I was escaping something. I just truly felt like I was going into something that I was called to do. And it was less about looking back at my life being like, this sucks because I had, like I said, great communities and great Mm. relationships in my family. I love so much. And when I moved to LA, it was one of the hardest days of my life because my grandmother had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so I knew that it'd be one of the last times I ever saw her again. And I have a, I had a baby sister who was like four years old, who, when I drove the U-Haul out of the yard was reaching her hand and screaming for me. So there were a lot of things that I loved and I didn't want to leave, but I really did feel, I was like, you know what, Aaron, you can't live your life for these people as much as you love them and as much as they love you, you are called to something else. And at the time I had no idea what that was, mm-hmm. but I was like, I have to go where I feel like my heart is being pulled and I may come back and I may screw up or mess up or whatever, but I have to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel yeah. like, oh, I got to leave these people in the dust. Yeah, yeah. I, I really feel, I love that place. I think it's so precious. You know, there's something so special and I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful that I grew up the way that I did. I'm yeah. grateful I grew up poor. I'm grateful I grew up without opportunities because it made me, it made me who I am and it made me respect opportunity. It made me work hard. It made me, um, see that I could create something from nothing and mm. taught me a lot. You know, I think a lot of times you look at people who are rich or who have a lot of privilege and you look at them and you think, man, it must be nice. But I'm grateful that I had nothing. I'm grateful that my grandmother used to sew. She worked in a plant and she used to sew little alligators, little cost alligators mm-hmm. on like a Walmart um, shirt so that my friends would think that I had nice clothes. Wow. But I'm glad that I saw do my grandmother. Do you still grandma- have any of those? I don't know that's if pretty I do. Awesome. I know that sounds amazing. <laughs> but, I'm glad I saw my grandma do that because in my head, I'm like, look, we aren't where we want to be, but it's not going to keep us from doing our best. And, um, I'm so grateful for where I'm from and how I grew up. Well, on the heels of that question is always, I ask like if you've ever, because, well, so if you haven't seen a psychiatrist, I guess you wouldn't have been diagnosed and or um, prescribed any medications or anything, but have you tried any medications like to help with stuff? And that can also include if you're you know comfortable talking about it, like drugs, alcohol, periods of your life where you felt like the, you were medicating in some way. Yeah, no, I actually really haven't. My mom is, um, I watched my mom struggle with alcoholism. Mm. She was a nurse and had access to prescription medicines regularly in the hospital. And with the stress of that job and, you know, some mental health illnesses that she currently has and was going through, I saw 
um, her abused prescription medication. And I saw what that did to her. And it really scared me. What kind of stuff was like, like opiates? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, lots of like Ambien and Xanax and which is stuff that's Mm, used in moderation as you are prescribed it are great things. Totally. But I mean, I, I'm full disclosure just so we're like both in the same club. Uh, my, my dad's like, that's what I grew up with. They were all prescribed. Things were prescribed. Not all of them. Some things were not, but you can be, that's why I avoided seeing a psychiatrist till I'm like 32. Cause I was like, they were going to prescribe. Yeah. All this shit that would fuck me up. That would make me a zombie version of me. That would, you know, and I saw that, you know, I saw that my mom and I was like, look, I'm so triggered by this. I will never take Mm -hmm. anything. I'm so scared to take Tylenol PM even. So I haven't good. really taken. I mean, I, 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 that can be bad. Obviously, I've, I've already expressed there's a way that can be bad if it prevents you. But I think it's so easy for us to act out the traumas of our parents, like just in a weird unconscious, like honoring them. And because we are the sum of our experiences, we just do what we're taught. So like if it's demonstrated for us that the answer to the pain of existence is to fucking medicate out. And I do think like you you feel good about escaping that, you know, in in like my community of like friends and believers that we call it a generational curse where where you are passed down like my mom's mom was an alcoholic, um, you know, and I just really want to fight that generational curse. And I do drink like I drink plenty and I love tequila shots, but I really find myself never drinking if I'm emotionally unwell. Wow. Um, if I feel like really depressed, I'm like, I'm not going to drink right now. And I don't do drugs. I've never done any drugs. Really? Yeah, I know. What about weed? You smoke weed? I've like hit someone's weed pen once and I was like, I don't feel anything. So this seems like a waste of my time. But I, yeah, I mean, I've not really... I've not really desired it either because yeah. I like being in control more. That was always how I felt. Um, and weirdly, as I get older, um, I'm very attracted now to in an intentional, I'm older now. I don't think it'd be and getting the right thing. Like I'm very much becoming attracted to, well, like psychedelics more. I've done a little bit of mushrooms, but never enough to have like big old psychedelic trips. But the more I've, I've read and the things that come out about like, um, uh, LSD mushrooms and their effect on depression, sometimes like literally as an intervention level event, like you only do it one time, it changes people forever. Addiction to some people have like done, uh, LSD, LSD mushrooms. One of them were like, just quit cigarettes that they never do them again. My mom has done a lot of stuff with like some of that in, in as even older than I am now, like, you know, in, in her what forties or fifties, I think she started trying some stuff and did like, uh, she did like an, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it was a medically facilitated MDMA, like MDMA therapy where like you take ecstasy, like medical grade MDMA with a professional psychiatrist. And she said it was like eight years of therapy in eight hours. She described it as saying like, I might actually have my mom on this podcast because she's always fascinating. I know she said she was like, it's one thing to learn and process and hear that you are held in the hands of God. And it's another thing to just be held in the hands of God. And I was like, that's pretty intriguing. And so the more I hear about that stuff, I'm very intrigued by seeing like, I don't know. I think you know, the earth provides a lot of things for us, you know, like it, it really does. If we don't, don't like, you know, fuck it into oblivion. It like really everything, our answers are here. There's a really interesting, not to get off on this topic too much, just as it intrigues me and it sparked the, the thought. There's, um, 
you know, DMT is this like one that I'm really interested in that, but it seems so intense that yeah. I don't, you, I think you have to work up to it and have it like facilitated correctly. But, it um, me. it's in like every living thing, like every living organic thing. And especially apparently it's in the bark of this, the acacia tree. Mm-hmm. And some people think that the burning bush in the Bible was an acacia bush. And that like this trip and God talking to you and meeting the creator, which is a lot of people have that experience on DMT is like they go to the center of the universe and they meet the the, the beings. Wow. I don't know. It's really fascinating to me. I mean, and it's it, fascinating you know, to like hear people's stories. I know that because I, I do feel like sometimes when people take drugs, whether it's just like regular drugs or like prescription medications, that it can trigger some mental health things that I saw it trigger right. in my mom. Right. Because my mom before, she became abusive of alcohol and drugs. Um, she mm. was a completely different person. That was always my fear when I was younger was I was like, I think I just was like, I knew there, I knew about the demons that lived in me. And I was like, I'm worried if I relinquish the steering wheel, it's going to be really bad. And I think maybe I've processed more and communicated more with them and like gotten them more out and figured it out, which is why now I feel less afraid of being out of control. Interesting. But I do think that might be why I didn't, I, I very much was like, I don't like being out of control. And then it's sort of like, this is, most people have the opposite experience. Most people are more free in their twenties to try things. And as you get older, you become less free because there's so much yeah. more on the line. You know, you have families and houses and careers. Blah, blah, blah. But so I think that's unless you live different. in this generation that we're living in this like weird millennial time. It's like, where like screw it. It's very, well, you have a little bit more stability, stable situation than a lot of people I know, including myself. But like, where it's like the generate what we were supposed to have the like married and the kids and the houses and the life and the things the, the things to lose just haven't sh- they're not here <laughs> they're like so it's like kind of like different well for everybody else it's yeah. different yeah yeah well anyway l- well I'll keep moving um what's my next one what's next on the list the next one on the list was uh oh what's something cheesy that you find inspiring Oh God, I'm the most cheesiest person, <laughs> especially when I got married to my husband, we became like super cheesy. One thing recently that has just gets me every time I think about it or every time I watch it is, um, the Mr. Rogers documentary oh. trailer. Yeah. Fuck me up with that. Mr. Rogers, anything, any <sighs> clip of him. And you're just like, Oh my, I've only seen that trailer. I haven't seen the movie yet. No, and I don't it's think like- it's out yet. No. And, and when I saw the trailer, you know, growing up, growing up, I watched a ton of Mr. Rogers and if you watch him as an adult I'd binge watched a bunch of stuff on YouTube I'm like this is some weird crap like I can't believe sometimes it's weird it's really weird but it's weird in a way that like children you freak like children have a different perspective on we, the world we even forget like yes we forget what we act some have you ever seen the movie Coraline oh yeah you know? yeah, yeah, yeah that's like I really like that movie and I like Neil Gaiman stuff a lot and I saw like a thread recently on Twitter on Neil Gaiman's thing was like um, someone had someone had shared uh, an image their child had drawn of their imaginary friend and it was very scary. It's like and they have yellow um, around their eyes so they can see in the dark and it's my just my imaginary friend. It's like definitely this kid is seeing ghosts. Yeah. But like a spirit. And Neil Gaiman's like, well, this is this is why so many children aren't afraid of Coraline. Like some of them are, but grownups ups 
are afraid of it, that there's something weird that's like so honest in their interaction with the universe. There's no judgment in right. how they perceive things. So Mr. Rogers to them is just the coolest person of all time, where as an adult, you've got so many um, experiences to filter how you see what you're watching. Yes. I think it's hard for adults for us to look at Mr. Rogers and like I every time still like uh, you're seeking guile, like you're seeking something sinister like there must be a reason that he's being so kind and weird and slow and deliberate and patient and when you can't find it it's it's very moving it is that trailer and then i saw the video that went viral of the guy who plays the sheriff in the show i don't know if i saw that um oh my gosh you'll you'll cry but um you know mr rogers he was one of the first recurring um black characters on television who had was painted in a very positive light and his story of how Mr. Rogers treated him on set. And there was a moment where Mr. Rogers is sitting at the pool and he's like, let's, it's hot day. Let's put our feet in the pool. And he's like, you know who I want to invite over my friend, Sheriff. I can't remember what his name was. And he's like, come over here. I want you to stick your feet in the pool with me. And the guy was reminiscing. He said, you have no idea how important that message was to children to have a man of color be invited to a white man's yard to stick his feet in the pool mm. water where this white man's feet were in. And he was like, it changed, it changed me forever. You know, that's so interesting. Like there's something about that. Not, you know, not to, I mean, the theme just keeps coming up, I guess for this episode, but the, I think it's beyond biblical. It's like a mythological thing we have about when, you know, mother Teresa washes someone's feet, when Jesus Ugh. washes someone's feet, that there's something so vulnerable and kind have about wash someone's feet. I have at yeah. Burning Man, wow. which is so funny. But like there was this camp because Burning Man's like everyone has a every camp that exists at Burning Man um, to be approved to have a lot in a camp. You have to like have a thing that you provide to the community of Burning Man. And there was one camp that was this foot washing camp. And when you're in Burning Man, like it's there's this weird dust that it's like this very insane dust that you just can't even wash off with normal uh, water, whatever the mineral is, you know, it's like and if you don't care do it wash it correctly like you'll get really cracked weird feet and it's like just part of the desert that like wants to kill human beings you know and somebody's they set up this camp and it's just these wash basins of like soap warm water um uh you know rags and and like some kind of oils and things and literally what you do is if you're passing by like i was bicycling by and i see it and i go oh and i you know come back and also even just water out there is impossible like you're not allowed to pour any water on the playa the whole idea is like that stains the playa and you're you were supposed to so you have to contain everything and bring everything with you and there's this thing of just like these rows of people you go take a seat and someone washes your feet and by the time and they're rubbing your feet washing your feet feels so nice and strange and vulnerable and then you realize everybody washing feet aren't the camp they're the people who had their feet washed before you and so then you that's really sweet then you take your turn and you wash someone else's feet and you can stay there as long as you want whatever but it is very strangely intimate powerful experience like a, a nurturing demonstration that feels like religious it feels ritualistic even if you're not a religious person it feels so symbolic and kind 
and inclusive, you know? Yeah, I did it actually for an ex-boyfriend of mine, not in a religious way at all. I was like, I'm going to give you a pedicure. And he was like, okay. I was like, take your shoes off. I'm going to, and I did it from this place of love. And I remember like washing his feet and realizing I was like, this is like really powerful. Mm. I, I, I had never experienced anything like that before. Like yeah. the vulnerability of it. So I think it's really, I wonder, you know, just thinking more about the implications, the metaphors and stuff, there's like your feet are what carry you through the world mm. and they do not, they're not cared for ever. Like you just, you know, and when people touch your feet, you know, it's people have very strong reactions to that. Sometimes they just don't like to have a feet touched at all. Sometimes it's very powerful. And it's like, to me, that and forearms and hand massage are like, oh my God, you use them all day long. You don't realize how much tension and, and pain is in there. And I, maybe there's something to that of saying like, I'm going to wash your feet and I'm like grateful that you're here. Like I'm grateful mm-hmm. that you are walking through this world and that these are carrying you. And, and I'm going to help you rest. Yeah. And that there's something precious too about like honoring this thing that allows you to have contact with the earth and that like allows you to spread yourself around this earth. That's like beautiful. You know, I think you get more out of it washing someone's feet than you do getting your feet washed. Oh this, yeah. This beautiful act of service. I love service. It's Is that your love language. I, you know, I don't like receiving it, but I love giving. Mm. Like I love, you know, before I, this happened, I went and picked up medication for my husband. I was like, I just wanted to love on it. Yeah. You know, I love service. And I feel like when you have a moment like that, it's just so you get more because you're giving than yeah. you do if you're on the receiving end. Well, following that one yeah. up, <laughs> the next one is... How we got uh, to foot washing. And it's that pretty good, though. It's pretty, it was pretty <laughs> nice. We went from Mr. Drugs, Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers to, to feet you know, washing. You should watch that video, though. I will. I might... I'll see if I can get a clip of it and put it in here. Oh, it's um, uh, Okay, I follow that one with... Uh, let me go to the other side of the spectrum. What's something dark about you? Mm. I deal... Well, I don't really as much anymore, but I did deal with rage for mm, a time in my word. life. Yeah. I could get very angry and maybe that's why I use the word hate so much because I really feel like there was just an angsty, angry part of myself. And I do think a lot of that comes with maybe being around so much death and being like, why did I have to go through all of that? Mm. But I know I'd find I'm a person who I'm like, you don't mess with me. I will get you. Like you, you look at me as a mm. woman and you think, Oh, you can, she's like a quote unquote, like pretty girl who can get taken advantage of. I'm not that girl. And I, I don't know if that's a protective mechanism or what that is, but I've really worked on it. I remember one time this guy was taking advantage of me. I pulled into a parking lot and he was like $5 to park here. I paid my $5. I left, came back and tried to leave. And he stood in front of my car and was like, you can't leave. You have to pay me five more dollars. And I said, that's not what our deal was. You told me $5. And he made me so angry because he was yelling at me and he wouldn't let me leave that I just rounded up every ounce of change that I had in my car. And I just like threw it at him with as much force as I could like completely like assaulting this person. And I remember feeling afterwards, like I had let it out, but then thinking to myself, this is not okay. Mm. Like you can never let yourself, you can never let your line be crossed and come to this place again. Yeah. Like so that. I, I don't, haven't really dabbled yeah. in rage very much, but Every maybe once every like ten you. years or so, I feel like I have a moment where someone really does something unjustly to me, and I just am not having it. Yeah, I'd get that. I mine wasn't usually. Um, I used to break things, you know. I like mm. when I was a teenager, especially. I punched my mom's windshield out. 
Wow. Uh, like just splintered out, not like at all, but you know, and just like I was in the car, angsty, they're doing something. My mom and dad start getting in a fight and like using me as an object in the fight. And I was just so mad. And I punched them and I go, oh, fuck. You know, it was like, I was like, it cost so much money. Shit, everyone got mad at me. But that, you know, I'd punch holes in my wall like a typical white boy, teenager, angsty youth, whatever. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, that was something. I, this is, uh, this is being ultra sensitive, maybe, but like, there are healthy ways to get like violence out of your body. Like just hit a heavy bag, you know, like go take your time, go somewhere safe where you can get that out. Sometimes run even. Yeah. Sometimes you, yeah, exactly. Sometimes you get a pound heat out of your heart. Like, and and you just got to do it in a way that's gets it out of your limbs. But I, I came to learn, even if it wasn't, attacking a person even it was like i punched my dashboard i broke like the vents on my dashboard in a fight with a girlfriend one time and she just immediately started crying and i i felt like why are you crying like oh i'm not mad anymore i got it i got it out like why are you crying and not realizing like that's a demonstration of violence that if someone doesn't speak that language or isn't okay with it that it's scary i was like i just took for granted that it's not okay to like just dump your rage out in irresponsible, impulsive ways. But I relate to what you're describing as like somewhere in me, it's there. I've since, you know, I feel like learned a lot of ways to dialogue with that thing that so they don't self harm or otherwise harm people. But I appreciate that you shared that. I appreciate that's like, I, that's a very human relatable thing. I I think think like what you said, I think, we typically think of guys being operating that way. Right. I've had a lot of ex-boyfriends who were like that. Well, guys are taught that violence is an acceptable way to express emotion. You yeah. know, that like it's one of the few acceptable ways. Like you can't be sensitive. You can't be like, talk about your feelings. Violence is like, okay though. Yeah. And I also feel like with like the testosterone that's flowing through your brain, right. it's not that that's any excuse, but I do think that that it changes it things. definitely changes some things. So I, you know, there, there are women who deal with the same things. I mean, it's not a huge thing for me, but it is something that when yeah. I think when you say what's one dark dark, thing about yeah, you, I go back to that scenario, yeah, you know. And to my defense, I was being you know, no, I think it's I there, was in a very well, fight or flight th- no, situation. Exactly, there are there are instances when it's. I think it's very speaks to like that. That's a very good faith thing of you to introspect and try to be better than your instincts. But these exist for a reason. There it's are times when it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well. It's like the gift of fear or whatever, you know? Anyway, uh, we'll brighten it up again. Uh, the next one uh, is, we're almost there. What's the last gorgeous thing you saw? The last gorgeous thing I saw. I just watched actually today a show that Clever did on uh, Facebook. It's called The Mirror Challenge. It's with Iskra, who's like this body positive oh, model. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had time to see the first episode, but you know when the pitch was being circulated around, it was like Iskra goes to um, her audience, like fans who aren't comfortable with their bodies, and they look in the mirror and they talk through it. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool, but I really need to see it executed. And I watched it today and just cried the entire time. Really? It was so incredible encouraging and so inspirational not just a plug for clever's content it really isn't no it really truly was so beautiful it encouraged me to be more confident in my own skin watching there was a, a girl who had stretch marks and um really just felt uncomfortable and just to have her look at herself and her body and like learn to accept it was so beautiful Mm -hmm. and amazing and I'm just like I want to create more content like this yeah people are lifted up you know our relationships with our bodies are so fucking insane 
we could do a whole like we'll, that'll be that. one we'll do that one sometime that's that's dope what's it called again it's called the mirror challenge it's a facebook watch show okay but it's um, delightful the mirror challenge with iskra yeah it is a clever thing right yeah yeah clever cool. produced it for her all right killer yeah we'll that's dope. All right. Uh, oh, this is the very last for the very last part. Okay, great. Um, I have, uh, it's the don't kill yourself list. I started, it's, uh, I started a long time ago in a very dark time in my life. And I would just, I would always start with coffee sandwiches and lavender soap. And they're just things that I would remind myself are reasons to not be dead. Cause they're really good things about being alive. And I'd like you to add something that is usually something like accessible, simple prep, you know, not like that, like, is a thing to remind yourself reality is good if you're in a dark place. I love hot showers. Hell yeah. Like I think those are, I could take two or three showers a day, not to wash, but just to stand under hot water. Coffee is definitely up there for me. Um, I love, I mean, this is kind of like a little deeper, but I love waking up to my husband. Mm. It's like that morning moment where I wake up and I see him and I'm like, I have him forever. That's like a morning moment that I'm just every single day. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to wake up tomorrow. Like beyond the morning we do coffee in life. I'm like, I love him. But there's something about waking up next to him. I'm just so excited to do it again the next day. Um, something else. You don't need anything else. That's fine. Is that it? I think that's so funny. Chips? that Chips. <laughs> cheeseburgers i mean i could keep going <laughs> chips and cheeseburgers hell yeah i love uh i don't think you could be more on brand of like starting as like aaron's my southern friend and she's like my favorite thing is waking up next to my husband Aww. i just love him but so it's much <laughs> it's so true y'all i'm telling you i date a lot of people and they were great people and you know of course love dating them while i was with them but I don't know. I think that when you're with your forever person, whoever that may be for you, when you get to do life with that person in an intimate way where they know every single cellulite dimple in your butt and you yeah. know what their farts smell like and you know, you've seen them at their very worst and their very best and when you know that you have committed your whole life to doing it together, there's just so much happiness in that. Or at least that's been my experience the last yeah. five years. It's just the best thing ever. And to love people through their mess and to have them love you through your mess. And yeah, it really truly, I mean, I, it sounds, I guess, so faux pas, but it's really just. No, it's not. What do you mean? Oh, because it's like not modern and hip and cool and well, shit. Well, it's just or like, oh, of course the wife's going to say that about her husband. But now, fuck that. I mean, that's what you're describing. I was, I was reflecting while you were saying that is like that really is. Uh, that's a spiritual practice: surrender and acceptance and love in all the good and bad ways. That like. I don't know if you're both on board with it. I don't know. I mean, I think pe hu human be beings, yeah, human it. beings are not reliable sources. Like they're not reliable baskets to put your fucking eggs in. Sure. But if you're going to take, if you, you know, if you can surf that, if you can take a leap of faith in another human being and, and live in that type of surrender, I think spiritually, that's a very profound thing. It's I mean, hard to love someone. It's hard to trust. And there have been moments where we both have been like, do we want to do this? Are we sure? Yeah. But still being like, no, we're doing this. So like we said we were and I'm going to make you better and you're going to make me better. And we're going to I mean, do that's it. fucking amazing. That's I used to always think like in a weird way, I was like, 
in an, in the idealized role, like, you know, fairy tale version, like arranged marriage didn't sound so bad because if you had two people who were like, no, had to approach it as like, no, we're trying, we're, I'm going to do my best earnestly as an individual to just love you and figure you out. And you're going to do the same thing for me. That's like, I honestly think I sometimes know. that could be a better approach to marriage than just being like, oh, we have this attraction and our sex life is amazing. And right. We look so good together in photos and we have the same friends. So we should just get married. Those relationships a lot of times don't work. Yeah. And I think two people who are willing to look at another person and be like, we're going to do this for the next 80 years, you and me, let's freaking go. <laughs> like as dirty as it gets, as dark as it gets, we're going to just keep going. I got your hand. We're going to keep going through this together. If you can be in that mindset, I think that that's cool, whether it's arranged or not. I mean, I feel like every day you make a choice in a marriage to be better or to push that person. And I love it. It's a challenge. I'm just saying that what you've described there, like you, you put in another person and it's cool because you guys are on board and you're a team, but like that is a truth for living. Like if you can have that faith in yourself and the universe and the things that are and whatever and wake up every day and choose, like I'd say, to choose to keep going, to choose to keep trying, to choose even through the fucking shitty dark stuff when you want to kill that person and that person might be yourself, yeah. to choose to go like, no, 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 but yes, then, it's true, I'm honoring that I want to do that, but... But then to tell them or you... That I love you. Right. When you want to say, I really hate your guts right now and you're an <laughs> asshole. In that moment, to choose to say, I love you is the best thing you can truly do for yourself. Yeah. Let's end on that. That's pretty nice. I like that. I just gave you a little button. That was a good ass button. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Really Thanks, appreciate it. Jerry. It was wonderful. Anytime. Bye. Thanks for listening to My Good Bad Brain. If you dug it, if you want to help keep this thing going forever, forever, ever, forever, ever, forever, ever, um, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. Drop a buck or two there. It makes a huge difference. Uh, also, leave us reviews uh, on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Those are really lovely and helpful. I hope you have a wonderful week, day, whatever. See you soon. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 